Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Whining About Herstory, everyone's favorite women's history podcast where two longtime gal pals drink wine and chat about women from history you have probably never heard of. Or maybe you have, in which case, good for you. But then the show isn't for you. <laughs> well, it still can be. Maybe we have extra facts. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh wow, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I'm. I'm blanking on a funny thing. I can't think of I it. No, I didn't know Eleanor Roosevelt was gay. Not that we actually covered her, but she was one of our say their names. Yes. Okay. That's an excellent example. <laughs> there or, you go. I didn't know Susan B. Anthony was a raging alcoholic. I'm just making that up. She was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she was. Who knows? I'm just making shit up now. You know what? History is all made up. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> History is made by the victors. I, that's And that's something we're going to tackle in this podcast. Oh, really? Well, that's we kind of what yeah, we're we doing. tackle it, I suppose. Yeah. I was going to say. The victors are usually men. And yeah. We're going to tell it from the women's perspective. Boom. Woot woot. So Kelly has a say their name. This is a segment where we highlight people who are just getting shit done and being awesome. And we're not going to do a whole story on them, but they definitely deserve a shout out. So the person I'm shouting out, and I'm probably going to like butcher her name, and I'm really sorry. Um, It's Ha'a Keolana, who's um, a Hawaiian woman. Oh, is she the surfer with the rock? who's, Who's a surfer that as training carries a 50 pound boulder underwater across the seafloor as training for surfing yeah because you can get like knocked down by a wave and you have to be able to hold Um, your breath and swim back up yeah her her grandfather is like legendary and yes and her her father teaches surfing and that's one of his techniques and so it's yeah there's like 13 second intervals between waves which means you can be under about a minute so this is her way of training her lungs to like but she kind of goes the extra mile by carrying a boulder. Yeah, um, I'll stick. I'll stick the picture on the blog for this episode. But it's it's amazing, and she's amazing. So yeah, that's uh, that's who I wanted to shout out because I saw that this week and I was like, ooh, that must have um, popped up on both think, of our timelines. Um, I think National Geographic just did a story okay. on her because that's who took the picture. So it's cool. That is awesome. So, yeah, she. She swims down 30 feet, picks up a rock, and then runs as hard as she can for 30 minutes. Wait. Like, does she come up for air in intervals? No. She runs as hard as she can. Oh, did I say 30 minutes? Yes. A minute. I was like... Swims down 30 feet, picks up a rock, and runs as hard as she can for a minute. I mean, that's still fucking badass. And then she probably does it multiple times. I remember... uh, So, as a swimmer, we would do those underwater drills where we're learning how to hold our breaths because... Yep. The fewer times you breathe, yep, the, fewer the faster you, have to you reach go. The service, the faster you have to go. Yeah. Because yep. breathing wastes time and causes drag and all that stuff. And I, it's I hate I, breathing is terrible. I hated those because you really push yourself and your body starts to go into that panic mode where am I am I going to drown? And I remember there was this one uh, workout that we had where we had to sprint our goddamn minds out twenty five yards yep. and then we had to climb out of the pool and you have to get out over this massive bulkhead yeah, which was really hard to get out dumb 
And then you have to immediately dive back in and swim underwater back. As far as you can. No, the whole 25 yards without coming up for air. And if anyone in these eight lanes came up for air, we had to start over. And we had to do that like 25 times or something. Oh, God. That would... That would suck. And I had just I had just come back to club swimming from high school swimming, so I was all tapered and rested and I was not ready to like it was a shock to my system and I was like, This is where I die. This is the exercise <laughs> that kills me. Fucking A. That's funny. And that's what I think when I do mountain climbers. I'm like, this is it. Oh I'm my dead. God. I feel I'm gonna that. slip. My foot's gonna slip out from underneath me and I'm gonna smack my head on the floor and I'm gonna die. That's gonna be the end of it. I feel that way about burpees. Yeah, those burpees are the worst. I fucking hate those. But yeah, I mean we did it. There was just one person who was um really having a hard time, so she was able to come up for air and it didn't yeah, like, you know okay, count she against gets, us. Like, once per, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she still killed it, too, but, I mean, everyone fucking did it yeah. because we had to. <laughs> yeah, right? You don't want to be that one person that's dragging everybody else down. So, Kelly, you picked our wine this week. I did, and it's one I've had before, and we actually went mimosa style because we're recording in the morning today, or, well, it's like noon. Well, we started drinking in yeah, the morning. Yeah, we started drinking in the morning. <laughs> um, So, it's a uh, barefoot Moscato, but it's... The Moscato Spumante Sparkling Champagne from California. And it says, deliciously sweet barefoot Moscato Spumante California Champagne bubbles over the hints of bubbles over with hints of mandarin orange tangerine aromas. Our Moscato Spumante Champagne is perfect with fresh fruit, sweet desserts or spicy cuisine. Mm. I get that because drinking it with the orange juice, there was like extra fruit other than oranges yeah. you know yeah i think it made a really good um it made sorry emily swinging out of the bottle um it made Smoke. a really good um mimosa yeah well i've only had it in the mimosa so i'm like i need to actually taste the wine Add a girl kelly get it yeah i can definitely like the orange the mandarin oranges i can definitely yeah taste that it's really good it did win the um barefoot bubbly most awarded sparkling wine brand from the consistent quality proven wine in u.s competitions oh cool yeah. so. the way the way that was worded I, I thought it won i thought the barefoot wine won award an award from barefoot wine yeah, right? I, was I was like, like um, well that means fucking nothing right that's like if we were saying, um, according to Whining About Herstory, uh, Whining About Herstory is the number one podcast in, in every the category. world. Every category. <laughs> every category. Oh, that's funny. But no, no, it's just how, yeah, they worded it kind of weird, but it's most most awarded in U.S. competitions. Nice. So um, I, I finished my mimosa. I'm not going to have any more today. And I left my glass upstairs. So I'm going to cheers with the wine bottle. Okay. But what are we cheersing to? God, this thing's fucking um, heavy. Yeah, I know. It's a big bottle. Um, I don't know. What should we cheers to? Um, I have actually I'm gonna cheers to my day started out kind of rough today. And I'm this kind of goes into what I'm thankful for, but I'm really thankful I was able to text you, Kelly, and be like, Can I come over? I need to get out of the house. And you're like, absolutely. So cheers to Good friends supporting each other when they're having a really hard time. Oh, I'm aiming for the bottle. Oh. So I was, was going to use the neck. Oh, fine. Here. It's more Both muted. good clinks. Yeah. Clinks all around. 
So I also get to go first today. So you guys get to hear my lovely voice for a little longer. I love your lovely voice. So today I'm doing someone more modern. They are not still alive, but more modern. Her name is Anna Mendita. Haven't heard of her? No, I have not. All right. Anna Marie Mendita was born into a middle class family in Havana, Cuba on November 18th, 1948. Okay. Her father, Ignacio, was a prominent political figure who ran afoul of Fidel Castro's government. Her mother, Raquel, was a chemistry teacher. So. Shit's going down. Yeah, I was going to say right off the bat. So Castro. (laughs) Um, Mendita grew up in a sheltered middle class family and attended an all girls Catholic private school. At age 12, Mendita and her 14 year old sister, Rocklin, were sent to the United States by their parents to live in Dubuque, Iowa. Cause going from Cuba to fucking Iowa. Yep. Um, oh, I'm so sorry. They they went through this program called Operation Peter Pan, which <gasps> oh, is a, was yeah. a collaborative run by the U.S. government and Catholic churches to get children out of Cuba. Can can I interrupt for a moment? Yeah, of course. So there is a show one day at a time, and it's a reboot from a show from like the 70s or 80s, but follows a family of Cuban descent and like the parents are separated uh, because both of them are veterans and the dad's struggling with PTSD. The daughter is a lesbian. The kid's dealing with like, like it, yeah. it's, it's, it's like a family sitcom. But they deal with some really heavy issues, and the Peter Pan program comes up in this because the mother's mother was was part part of of that, and so she and all of her sisters came to America except for one who was too old and had to stay behind, and it was like... She died before they could be reunited. And, like, spoilers, it's so sad. And I'm really mad it didn't get renewed for, like, a uh, fourth season, I think. So I'm like, what is wrong with you? Because there's an episode where the mom has to stay on hold with the VA, like, all day. And if she has to step away, she has to have someone watch the call. And I'm like yes you're fucking nailing it right now right. because fuck them that's funny i mean not like haha funny but like relatability, relatability. Funny. <laughs> yeah. um so yeah they went through operation peter pan and they were among fourteen thousand children who immigrated to america on their own in 1961 god that's so sad that's probably why they got dubuque iowa well and that's like when they would send kids uh, from London to rural England in World War Two yep. to get them away from the bombing. Yep. This is just Fidel. <sighs> Fucking A, Castro. Right. Um, so Mendita and her sister spent the first two years in the United States um, moving between different places. However, the sisters were able to stay together due to their parents signing a power of attorney mandating that they don't be separated. So that you know, one bright spot. Okay. So they spent their first, when they first got here, they spent their first few weeks in refugee camps and then institutions and then foster homes in Iowa. And and then when they were sent to Iowa, they were enrolled in a reform school because the court wanted to avoid the, sending them to a state institution. Probably because, you know, they're Cuban and I don't know. Wait, so like we wouldn't be spending taxes on them? Or? I don't really know, but I think so. What's a reform school? Is it I, like a parochial school? Kind of, I think. Okay. I don't know. I might have to look that up. Email us at whinyaboutherstory at gmail.com if you know what a reform school is. Right. Um, so when Mendita studied English in school, her vocabulary was very limited, but it expanded quickly. In junior high, she discovered her love for art. In 1966, Mendita was reunited with her mother and younger brother. Aww. Her father joined them in 1979, having spent 18 years in a political prison 
in Cuba for his involvement in the Bay of Pigs invasion. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. So the whole family is just shattered. Yeah, but they eventually got back together, which that's, is good. That's good. And I'm I'm honestly surprised. Right. Um, Mandita did end up going to college, which is great. She went um she started out as a French major in art minor and then when as she got more into the University of Iowa, she was inspired by their avant garde community and the hills of the landscape around her that she changed to have a BA and MA in painting and an MFA in intermedia. Damn. Yeah. So she she's like, no, fuck this art. Add a um, girl. Yep. And she studied under the instruction of acclaimed artist Hans Bretter, who I think I've heard of. I don't know. I haven't. He was a, a famed artist. So if you want to look him up, go look him up. This isn't about him. All the art listeners are going, what? Oh, yeah, my right. God. In college, um, her work focused a lot on blood and violence toward women. And her interest in spiritual and religious things and primitive rituals also started developing during this time. And I'm going to talk about one of her art pieces that if you suffer from strong trigger warnings, you might just want to, like, skip ahead, like, a minute and then continue the story. Yeah, the, the, this is our trigger warning. Kelly. Yeah, this is my trigger warning. Kelly told me about it before we got started because she wasn't sure if she was going to share it, but it's an important p- part of this person's story. But we want to do our due diligence. Yeah. We don't want to upset we don't anyone. don't want to upset, upset anyone. Yeah. So just skip like a minute, minute and a half ahead and you should be fine. And now. In 1937, when she, why she was in college, um, she learned of an on-rape... On, on Wait, 1937? 73. Oh. I said 37. <laughs> Dyslexia uh, is yeah, so is. much fun. So 73, she learned about an on-campus rape and murder of a nursing student named Sarah Ann Ottens. Her outrage over the incident drove her to stage one of the most confrontational and violent pieces named Rape Scene. For the piece, she upended her apartment, covered herself with blood, and tied herself to a table to recreate the aftermath of a brutal sexual assault. She invited an audience to the made-up crime scene where she remained bent over the table with blood dripping down her legs and pooling at her feet as they discussed the incident. There are photographs of the scene that are still displayed in museum exhibits around the world. Most recently, the whole series was displayed at the Brooklyn Museum. Good God. End. (laughs) Fiend. Yeah. Well, and that's fiend uh that section. Well, and I'm I'm not going to go into detail, but I think it's important that we talk about how we address those things and talk oh, about yeah. those like, things. And the fact that she did that and it was just like, "Hey, this is something that happened and this is an interpretive piece and it's violent and it's gory and it's people not need pretty. to see it." Well, and that's the struggle is when violence is depicted in media, we romanticize a lot of it. And she definitely didn't. No, you you need to treat it with respect, but also like this isn't pretty. Yeah. Yeah, she did she did a lot of that in her series that we'll get into. She also faced a great deal of discrimination in art school, and so after she graduated and after graduate school, because I said she got her master's, um, she moved to New York City. Um so through the course of her y- her career total she worked in cuba mexico italy and the united states she did a somewhat autobiographical and did um some drawings of her history about being displaced and you know uprooted from cuba because obviously 12 years old she was old enough to like remember yeah it's not like she was two and doesn't even remember cuba right half of her life is in cuba the other half is in iowa yeah right fucking Um, a and her 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 focus (laughs) themes tend to be feminism violence life death identity place and belonging 
you know, obviously all things that affected her over her life. I was going to say, God, I wonder where she got all that from. <laughs> right. Um, she also generally um, associated with the four basic elements of nature. So she did a lot with that. And she also focused on spiritual and physical connection with Earth. She felt that uniting by uniting her body with the Earth, she be- she could become whole again. This is a quote. Through my earth body sculptures, I become one with the earth. I become an extension of nature and nature becomes an extension of my body. This obsessive act of reasserting my ties with the earth is really the reactivation of primal beliefs. An omnipresent female force, the after image of being encompassing within the womb in a manifestation of my thirst for being. That was her her quote. You know what's super cool about all this is she's clearly traumatized in a way. I mean... Oh, yeah. I mean, that had to be horrible. Well, like... Your family is split up. You're having to go to another country and Iowa of all places. I'm right, just which are probably on- not, at, especially during that time, super friendly to immigrants. Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. And so art can be a really good way to cope with those feelings and that trauma. Yep. And it sounds like that's exactly what she's doing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the fact that she was able to find that outlet is amazing because not everyone learns how to cope with the tough things in their life and their trauma yeah yeah she she did a lot of amazing things so during her lifetime speaking of like her her oneness with earth um she produced over 200 works of art just using earth as a sculptural medium Jeez. so like did she just one chunk do like clay yeah various things i'll get into it so her man her art was sometimes violent and often unapologetically feminist and raw like i said she incorporated um the four elements she also liked to incorporate like blood in hers and she worked through mainly photography film and live performances so she nice. was into a little bit of everything nothing she did ever surprises me said um mendita's sister rockland the one that came with her she's she was always very dramatic even as a child and liked <laughs> to push the envelope to give people a start to shock them a little bit it was who she was and she enjoyed it very much and she laughed about it when people started to get freaked out so like her, her sister was like, yeah, that's just her. I love so, that. She's yeah. like, just kind of uh, not antagonistic, but, but she's, she's she likes to push the envelope. She's a turd. Right? I love it. <laughs> so as an immigrant, she felt disconnected from the United States and, you know, rem- like I said, remembered the trauma of being uprooted from her Cuban homeland. And she it left her with a lot of questions about her identity and made her more conscious about being a woman of color, mm-hmm. you know. And so she struggled with that a lot. And like you said, yeah, it definitely echoed in her work. And she urged viewers to disregard their gender, race, and other defining societal factors and instead connect with humanity they share with others when viewing her work. You know what's interesting about that is that struggle with identity. Because a lot of times when I think about racial issues, I think of them within the context of, you know, people of, col- of color living in America, growing up in America, and always being seen as the other, the right. outsider because of that. And that's not right. That's not accurate. But to go from a place at 12 years old where no one gives a shit that right. you're Cuban, no one gives a shit what your skin color, or your hair color, or whatever is, and then being dropped into an area where that is all people care about. Yeah, that's all got, they see. That's got to be so jarring. Especially when you don't speak a lot of English. So you know, oh, no. you know it's even worse. Yeah. You know, it's like you, you see people maybe staring at you and whispering, but you don't 
you you don't know what they're saying, but you have this sense that it's not good. Right. You can just But you tell. don't know enough to like call them out. Yeah. yeah. You're in a very vulnerable position. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Oh, my God. So, yeah, she brought a lot of that rawness and anger and, you know, forward with her. Um, in 1978, Anna joined the Artists in Residence, Inc., or the AIR Gallery in New York, which was the first gallery for women to be established in the United States. Wow. Yeah. Yep. This was in the 70s? 1978. It, it wasn't s- established in 1978. It just happened to mention that this was the first one okay. established. I didn't go look up when it was established. I was like, right? good, come on, America. I know. Get your shit together. Um, the venture allowed the opportunity for women like Anna to network with other artists at the forefront of the era's feminist movement. So, you know, it brought a lot of women together, which was great. During that time, Anna was also actively involved in the administration and, and the maintenance of the gallery. In an unpublished statement, she once noted that it is crucial for me to be a part of all my works. As a result of my participation, my vision my vision becomes a reality and part of my experiences. So, you know, she you'll see later when I talk about it. She she liked to participate in her own art. Yeah. A lot. It was an interactive experience versus something to just put out there. Exactly. Okay. Like she wanted to tell a story. So she did it herself. I think I do I do think she used other models, but she also liked to appear in her own art a lot. She's like a micromanager. She's like, no, no, no. I'll do this. I've got this. You you do your thing. I am I'm here. I'm active. Right. Yeah, exactly. After two years of her involvement at the gallery, she concluded that the American feminism as it stands at the time is basically a white middle class movement. Yep. Um, she sought to challenge these limits of the perspective through her art. She met her future husband, Carl Andre, at the gallery when he served on a panel titled How the Women's Art Practices Affected Male Artists' Soci- Societal Attitudes. So there was a panel about how women's art affects male art. It was weird. Okay. But that's where she met her husband. Okay. Okay. Um, she resigned from the gallery in 1982, and it is attributed in part to a dispute um, instigated by her husband over a collaborative art piece the couple had submitted. The owner of AIR from 2006 to 2011, Kat Griefen, wrote, The letter of resignation did not cite any reasons for her departure, but a number of fellow AIR artists remember the related events. For a recent benefit, um, Anna and Carl had donated a collaborative piece, as was the policy all works needed to be delivered by the artist. Edelson recalls that Andre took offense, instigating a disagreement, which, in part, led to Anna's resignation. Even without this incident, according to another member, Pat Lashk, Anna's association with the now legendary Andre surely played some role in her decision. Okay. It was basically because of her husband. I want to comment, but at the same time, I feel like I don't know enough to make a judgment. You can comment. Oh, because I'm like, dude, what are what? Why are you causing a stink over your wife's art? Like, it's just like it sounded like he made the stink over having to deliver the art in person. Yeah, like like, why is that that big of a deal? I don't get that. I don't either. Okay. In 1983, Mandita was awarded the Rome Prize from the uh, American Academy in Rome, and while in residence there, she began creating art. And they put this in quotes. I don't know why. Objects, <laughs> including drawing and sculptures. And she continued to use natural elements in her work. Okay. I don't know why objects was in quotes. 
But I left I was, it in there. I was going to say, like, art pieces, maybe? Yeah, maybe. Um, okay, so now I'm going to talk about some of, like, the series she did over mm-hmm. her career. So the first one is the the Silhouetta or the Silhouette series, which she produced between 1973 and 1980. It involved her creating female silhouettes in nature using mud, sand, and grass with natural materials ranging from leaves and twigs to blood and making body prints or painting her outline or silhouette into a wall. So it's like... Some of these photos are really cool, and I'll, I don't want to post all of them, but maybe I'll find a link if there's, like, an online gallery. Right. Because they're really, really cool. I just, I love the idea of using natural elements, because when you say that, I think, oh, yeah, grass and twigs yeah, and there's, mud, there's and one, then it's, like, also blood. Right. I'm there's, like, there's one of her laying in, like, an abandoned grave, and I can't remember if it was in Spain or Cuba, but I was looking at it earlier, and it's her, and then she put white flowers, so it looks like they're, like, growing out of her body. Like, it's really cool. God, that's fucking awesome. Um, um, so as uh, during her creation of this series, she said, I have been carrying out a dialogue between the landscape and the female body based on my own silhouette. I believe that this has been a direct result of my having been torn from my homeland during my adolescence. I am overwhelmed by the feeling of having been cast from the womb or nature. My art is the way to re- I reestablish my bonds that unite me to the universe, and it is a return to the maternal source. So that was her quote about this series, which is sad and cute. Like, it was like, aw. Well, it's kind of like, um, if you think about it, every patch of land, every leaf, all of that is somehow connected to it- to each other, because we're all on the same planet. Yep. So it's like, if I can be a part of the Earth, I'm a part of Cuba. I'm a part of my home. I'm a part right. of, you know everything else that's greater than me exactly it's beautiful um so the films and photographs of the silhouette series are in connection with the figures surrounding her body mandita was or anna sorry that's her last name was possibly the first to combine these genres of land art body art and performance art in what she called earth body sculptures she often used her naked body to explore and connect with the earth as seen in her piece imagine de yagul which is the one i was talking about where she's laying with, like, flowers coming yep. out of her body. So it's pretty cool. Um, her first use of blood to make art dates back after college, I'm going to say. First use of blood after college. Postgraduate study. Yes. Um, um, dates back to 1972 when she performed Untitled Death of a Chicken, for which she stood naked in front of a white wall, holding a freshly decapitated chicken by its feet as blood spattered her naked body. That's dedication. That is dark. I fucking love it. Well, apparently that actually happened before the other piece. Because the next sentence is about the thing I already talked about. With the, the flower grave? Piece. Oh. Oh, okay. So apparently that did happen after. That was apparently 1973. So she did the chicken thing in 1972, the other piece in 1973. Okay. So, which is interesting. So I'm, this is a quote about the rape scene piece. Um, it, it's not bad, so you don't have to skip this. Okay. Um, her body was a subject and object of the work. She used it to emphasize the societal conditions by which the female body is colonized as an object of male desire. Anna's corporeal presence demanded the recognition of the female subject. The previously invisible victim um, gained an identity. The audience was forced to reflect on its responsibility. Its empathy was elicited and translated to the space of awareness in which sexual violence could be addressed. 
colonization of the female body. Right. That I mean, that's just that fucking nails as an it object as, as of an, male desire. It because I. That's a beautiful way to say that. It is, and it fucking nails. Oh yeah, it, it hits it? the nail on the head because that's that's how I feel so often. You know, I'm, you know, I need to cover up because I'm going to incite sexual aggression from men around right. me. Um, I need to be submissive. I shouldn't take up as much space, right. you know, and I'm, I'm constantly self-aware of where I am, who's around me, because there's that idea that my body is not my own. Yep. And I'm, I'm just fending off attacks. Yeah. There's... I don't remember what it's called now, but there's like a challenge essentially for women to not move out of the way of men when they're walking. Because oh, it's, yeah. it's something women naturally do. And I've noticed I do it. But to stay their course and either make the men move or the men will run into them and then be like, oh, my God, this woman didn't move. And it's I've done it before. I, I don't do it as much at work because I work in a place where as a worker, we're supposed to be more. I work in a hospital, so we're supposed to like be more accommodating to the guests and stuff like that so like i won't do it there yeah because the last thing you want to do sometimes if i see it's like i see their badge and then i'm like no fuck you you can get out of my way the last thing you want to do is accidentally body check a patient exactly (laughs) but yeah it's it's about women you know not being that submissive it's like no i'm walking here you can get out of my way right and the woman that started it talked about how yeah sometimes the guys like don't know what to do when a woman doesn't move out of the way, their way, so they'll either, like, stop or they'll, like, kind of run into her or, like, because they don't, like, they're not used to it. Right. So it's very interesting. And that, you know, what you were saying kind of made me think of that. Like, it's just, no, we don't need to do stuff for them. We're like, constantly accommodating but the why? men around us. So it's because that's what we're taught. But we yeah. shouldn't. We don't need to. No, absolutely. And it's like that, like, uh what i absolutely hate is like oh you should smile more why yeah whether i'm smiling or not smile more (laughs) well and it's my fucking business you don't know what's going on in my life right and here's the thing that's why when i hear of like some people now that they're like i like i saw someone that i'm like i'm part of this group and like it's a women's group and they said um they were walking by a construction site and one of the guys like yelled at them and then they realized they weren't like cat calling them they were like no you look really nice in that dress like and it wasn't like sexual it was just right. like hey you look good and then that was it like he went back to work that was and i was like that's a that's an appropriate interaction that's how things should happen it shouldn't be hey smile more hey you're sexy or you know or like that like, drive by hey, you look nice have you ever had like that drive-by shit where you're or walking? Or they just like honk at you? They honk and they yell from the car. Yes. There is there is this one time. I know we're getting off on a whole tangent, but I feel like this is part of what the podcast is. Yes. I was walking through a neighborhood with my friend because we were walking downtown to go see a musician or something. And this car drives by and it's full of guys. There's like yep. four guys in the car and they're all, they all start like yelling from the car like, woohoo, sexy, meh, and just being super inappropriate. And I got, I normally don't respond because I'm afraid of inciting violence. Right. Inciting violence makes it sound like it's my fault, but it's, you know, I don't. It's men's fragile ego. Yeah. But I yelled back. I was like, go fuck yourself or something like that. Because I just got so pissed. And then I hear this like sharp squeal of the tires and my heart just fucking sank because I was like. 
Well, what it was is they took a sharp turn. Okay. And but they, no, you think, they didn't you, come no, back. No, I'm saying your heart like stops because you s- assumed they stopped. Right. I thought I thought they were like turning around to come yeah. and confront me or something. I was absolutely terrified because four dudes in a car like against and us always, and we're, and we're that alone. That always seems and, to what it is though. It always is like a group of guys or at least two. Yeah. There's always like a passenger. There's It's never usually just a driver. Well, because it's also performative, exactly. I feel, because you have to show off in front of someone else. Yeah. It's you know? terrible. It's just fucking awful. But yeah, that whole idea of like uh, colonizing women's bodies for men's sexual desire totally nails it. And on so many levels, we could spend the rest of the podcast talking about examples of that. Hmm. But yeah. we won't because... No. I will continue with my story. Because <laughs> I'll need to keep drinking. Yeah. So in another slide series done during the same time as the Silhouette series, she pours blood and rags on a sidewalk and photographs a seemingly endless stream of people walking by without stopping until finally the man next door comes out and cleans it up. So she used this as a way to like be like, look, people don't care about violence. Mm-hmm. Like They're just like, oh, this isn't my problem. I'm going to keep walking. And the only reason the man next door probably cleaned it up is because he owned a storefront next door. Ah. So it wasn't even, you know, it's probably, it like, he's probably just like, oh, this is bad for business. I should probably clean this up. We only care about violence when it affects us, exactly. which is what makes it so easy to ignore uh, the plight of people of color, you know? Oh, well, that's not going to happen to me. I'm white. Yeah, exactly. Or that's not going to happen to me. I'm a man. Yeah. So more of her silhouettes created, um, she did one in grass. So she used her body to create a silhouette in grass and then in sand and then in dirt. Next, she um, she used fire and then filmed them burning. Ooh. Yeah, which is kind of cool. I like I'm that. I'm going to have to look those ones up. I love fire because it simultaneously has the sense of destruction and rebirth. Right. It's violent and pretty. <laughs> um. So let's see. She said, it says... One of her pieces um, named Ochun, which that might I might be pronouncing that incorrectly, named for the Santeria goddess of water, once pointed southward from the shore of Key Biscania, Florida. So that's pretty cool. Nice. Like, I'm, I'm guessing it's not there because it says once pointed. And then she did Na- Naningo Burial with a title taken from the popular name of an Afro-Cuban religious brotherhood is a floor installation of black candles dripping wax and the outline of the artist's body. Oh. Yeah, that one's probably cool. I love, I know that's not the point, but I love that some of this stuff seems so goth. Yeah. And it speaks to my little, like, high school goth heart. Yeah, right? Marie Jane Jacob, who is, like, a exhibitor of art, suggests a catalog called Animandita the Silhouetta series. Um that much of Anna's work was influenced by her the, in her religion, the San- Santeria, which I think is slightly voodoo-ish. Yeah. Um, yeah, it has some uh, some similar yeah. elements. Um, I just know there's a song that starts out, I don't practice Santeria, I ain't got no crystal ball. And that's how we get sued. No, <laughs> no we get demonetized, which is fine because we're not monetized anyways. Uh, so yeah, they thought like that it was... That she did some of these to, to, was influenced by her religion in Santeria as well as that connection she sought to Cuba. Jacob also attributes uh, Anna's ritualistic use of blood and the use of gunpowder, earth, and rock to Santeria's ritualistic traditions. Nice. So, yeah, that's pretty cool. 
So then another series she did was the Rupestarian Sculptures. It's R-U-P-E-S-T-R-I-N. We're going to go with Rupestarian because that sounds correct. That's going to be our attempt at it. Right. We're sticking with it. So she, um, this was something she was working on before her death. Anna was working on a ser- so this series of photo etchings of cave sculptures she created in the Escaleros de Horico Hor- State Park in Havana, Cuba. Um, her sculptures were entitled the Rupestarian Sculptures, and the title refers to living among rocks. Um, so she was able to return to Cuba at some point? Yep. That's Probably good. Probably after Fidel. <laughs> No, he's still around, isn't he? He died yeah. the last two years. Okay. So he it was probably died. like when things calmed, when Fidel kind of calmed down. Okay. As much as he did, which was not much, but, <laughs> you know, kind of when things between us and Cuba were a little bit better. Okay. Um. Yeah. So in the 80s. You know, here's the thing. We don't know anything about yeah, right? Fidel. We don't know anything about the conflict between we just the know United she went States back and Cuba. To Cuba. We just know she went back to Cuba, and then we're wildly speculating right. as to why. Um, so the photographic etchings were created to preserve the sculpture she had made um, is a testament to the inter- intertextuality of her work, because she made them out of sculpture and then also did an etching of them, which is kind of cool. Yeah, she does all this, like... uh multimedia stuff yeah the photographs of the sculptures were often as important as the sculpture itself as they were documented um as they were documenting the nature of her work and how impermanent it was because all, all yeah the, she took the pictures because all those sculptures are going to be gone right so that's kind of a cool like you know well you can you can make your point but you can also share it. Right. You can spread it. And no one has. It's more accessible that way. And she spent as much time and thought on the creation of the photographs as she did on the sculptures themselves. So, so she's she, not just like, you know, she, oh, here's a sculpture. It's kind of almost a separate art piece. Yeah. Which is cool. So for this, yeah, she returned to Havana, the place of her birth. Um, and she was still exploring her sense of displacement and lo- and loss during this this series. This series was influenced by the ta- the Taino people, which are na- native inhabitants of the pre-Hispanic Antilles Mountains, who Anna became fascinated by and studied during this time period as well. So that's pretty cool. She had only completed five of the photo etchings of the of the sculptures before she died. So it's a little sad. Oh no! What happened? Yeah, we're we'll get there. <sighs> we'll get there. Body tracks is a a famous piece of hers which is just um, long blurry marks that Anna's hands and forearms made as they slid down a large piece of white paper during a performance heightened with pulsing Cuban music. Nice. So that's kind of cool. Um, she also did, you know, live action or and made films of them. So she, ha- she has a bunch, so I'm not going to, like, go through all of them because there's a lot. You can look them up. She was getting shit done on the daily. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um. So one of them, I'm going to talk like about a few of them. So one of them was called Creek, which builds on the Shakespearean character of Oph- Ophelia, who, you know, <gasps> drowned herself. Yep. Um, it was shot in the San Felipe Creek in Mexico. And in the film, Man- Anna emerges merges with the water. So like they become one. So that's pretty cool. Instead kind of, of the water being, it. instead of the yeah. water being antagonistic. Yep, exactly. God, um, Hamlet she also was made such a one- fuck boy. Right. <laughs> She also made one called Ochun, um, and this one was filmed in Florida. It is about the Santeria goddess Ochun the, and the Orisha River 
It features sand silhouettes, seagull sounds, ocean waves, and emphasizes themes of longing for another land. And it was the last film she made. Mm-hmm. So she made a bunch of other ones. My favorite one was titled Chicken Movie, Chicken Piece. <laughs> which I assume has to pro- is probably similar to the naked body chicken waving piece of art from earlier as well. Yep. Some of her stuff was posted after she died because she has she formed something called the Estate of Anna Mandita Collection, um, and her family members found several films after her death, while um, which got to be included in a retrospective piece that happened in 1987. In 2016, they found more films, and they digitized them into in, in anticipation of a documentary di- directed by the artist's niece. As of 2019, that film, Rebel by Nature, is still in post-production. So it's still coming out. Okay, good. Um, I was like, I haven't heard of it. Right. It better be coming out. I know. I want to watch that. Also, Um, Rebel by Nature. I know. Episode title. Yeah, there you go. Um, The two that got released after the 2016 films were found um, were called Pain by... Pain of Cuba slash Body I Am, which came out in 2018, and then The Earth That Covers Us Speaks, also in 2018. What would she die of? Because she couldn't oh, have been that old. Oh, okay. There. If her husband murdered her, I'm walking out. Eh. Oh my! What? I technically can't prove it. Um. Wh- oh. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so she was featured in something called Dialects of Isolation, an exhibit of the Third World Women Artists of the United States. So that was nice. That was in 1981. So she was still alive when that happened. Okay. Death and controversy. Anna died on September 8th, 1985 in New York after falling from her 34th floor apartment in Greenwich Village, where she had lived with her husband of eight months, who may have pushed her out the window. Okay, so because he was mentioned so far back in the story, I thought they'd been married for a long time, but they got married... He threw a fit about the place uh, he, threw he was a fit, working. I think, when they were dating. Oh, Let me okay. Roll back up and see what year that was. No, 1982. Yeah, so they would have still been dating if they had only been married in eight, eight months in 1985. Okay. That's so creepy. Okay. So she fell 33 stories onto a roof of a deli. Oh, just fuck. prior to her death, neighbors heard the couple arguing violently, but there were no eyewitnesses to the events that led up to her death. A recording of Andre's 911 call shows him saying, quote, My wife is an artist and I'm an artist, and we had a quarrel about the fact that I am more uh, exposed to the public than she was, and she went to the bedroom and I went after her and she went out the window. This is the 911 call? Yep, that was the 911 call. Who uses the word quarrel in a 911 call? Who explains? I don't like, know. in a 911 call, you say, My wife fell out the fucking window! I fell out the fucking window! Right. What the fuck did you? Yeah. You don't, you know, you're not calm. That sounds calm. Well, my wife and I well, were in a quarrel and, and about how fucking awesome I with, am. You don't start with, my wife is an artist and I am an artist. And we got in a fight about how awesome I am over her. Wow. What? <laughs> yeah. Okay, like, okay. I know so due a process thing. is a thing, but like, can we all just whining take about her street agree he, <laughs> he fucking <laughs> murdered her because he's a piece of shit? Um, in 1988, Andre was tried and acquitted of her murder. Um, it took three years of legal proceedings. Um, Andre's lawyer described Anna's death as a possible suicide or accident, and the judge found Andre not guilty on grounds of reasonable doubt. And um, there I get was that. someone on on the ground, so outside. He didn't see them push her, but she, he heard sounds of like a an, struggle. A struggle, but it wasn't enough. 
Oh, I'm so pissed. Yep. The acquittal caused an uproar among feminists in the art world and continues to remain controversial to this day. No shit. Yeah. In 2010, a symposium called Where is Anna Mandita was held in, at New York University to commemorate the 25th anniversary of her death. Good. That's fucking awful because she should still be alive. Yeah. In May 2014, the feminist protest group No Wave Performance Task Force staged a protest in front of the, the Die Art Foundation's retrospective on Carl Andre. So they protested him. They're like, no, fuck you. Yeah, fuck him. Here's um, the thing. I, even if he did not kill her, right? anyone who starts out a 911 call about their wife going over the side of a balcony saying, well, we were arguing about how awesome I am. Fuck you. Go away. I don't have time for you. No one has the time or energy for you. Right. I know. Um, so this group deposited piles of animal blood and guts in front of the establishment with the protesters donning transparent tracksuits with I wish Anna Mandita were still alive written on them. Anna would have loved that. So that was May 2014. In May 2015, the No Wave Performance Task Force and a group of feminist poets traveled to Beacon, New York, to protest another Andre retrospective by the same place. Can people stop showing his work? Right. Where they cried loudly in the main gallery and made silhouettes in the snow on the museum grounds and stained the snow with paprika sprinkles and fake blood. I love that they're using, like, the elements that she was so known for in her art to tell this guy to go fuck off. Um, And then in April 2017, so just... Two years ago. Jesus. Protesters at an Andre retrospective. Is it by the same place? I don't even place? know who this guy is. I know. Um, Why is, no, it what? doesn't say who this one was. But no, this one wasn't. There's like one shitty gallery that keeps no, showing this is, his this stuff. this is a different gallery. Okay. Um, so they handed out cards at the Geffen Contemporary. So a different gallery. Um, with the statement, Carl Andre is a Mocha Geffen. Or is at Mocha Geffen. Donde oh. esta Anna Mendito? Or where is Anna, Anna Mendito? I thought they were like... Using a racial slur there for a second. No. This was followed to, by an open letter to the MOCA director, Philip Philippi Verne, protesting the exhibit from the group of the Association of Hyster- Hysteric Creators. So they actually sent, like, the the gallery owner a letter being like, why the fuck are you doing this? Yeah. You heard the 911 call, right? right? He's yeah, a piece right. of shit. Um, so in 2009, she was awarded an, an, a, li- a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Sintis foundation which is cool like i said she still has an estate that is still managed um she so it's represented by the gallery Long in new york and by the allison jacques gallery in london so like, okay there's multiple people that are carrying her work um in 2018 new, the new york times published a belated obituary for her they've because been doing do- that they, yeah they're doing a series and some of this inf- information i actually pulled from that obituary they're yeah they're doing a series of like what do they call it like forgotten obituaries or something yeah because the new york times used to only publish like right white rich dudes like the article that i read actually like called that out like yeah our bad yeah um and so yeah they're going back and publishing obituaries for people they feel should have been published and she was one of them well and and they're they're still uh, doing it no they're still doing it they're um a lot of the women that i've covered they've popped up on the new york obituaries um so what else did she do Came back to haunt her husband from the grave. Right. So she's she's been recognized with multiple international solo museum retrospectives, including at the Art Institute of Chicago, the De La Cruz Collection in Miami, 
and a few other places have held retrospectives in her honor. Mm -hmm. In 2004, the Hishborn Museum and Sculpture Garden in Washington, D.C. organized Earth Body Sculpture and Performance, which was a major retrospective that included her and toured um, multiple museums. So that was that was that's pretty sweet. Um, and her her work is also featured in a lot of major collections. She's at the Guggenheim mm. um, Metropolitan Museum of Art, um, the Museum of Modern Art, Chicago's Institute of Art. Like so, she's in a lot of major locations. Her art is being recognized yeah. by major players in the art world. So that is her legacy. That's awesome. God, her husband's still a jackass. Yeah, like, seriously, I, I understand why he was acquitted, because if no one saw him push her, right, it's, it's, it's hard to... beyond a reasonable doubt thing, and there was reasonable doubt, but dear right. God. Who? I don't care. He's still... Even if he didn't do it, he's a piece of shit. Who starts a 911 call that way? My wife is an artist, and I am an artist, and we had an, a quarrel about me being more awesome than her, and she went to the bedroom, and I followed, and she went out the window, and I don't know what happened. Yeah, and like here, like whenever I listen to true crime podcasts, if they have a nine one one call where it's like the killer is calling in and lying about it, they always dissect it, and right. I'm like, this is all the like telltale <laughs> yeah. signs of bullshit. We're, we we just get to, we get we're combining our loves of art or of women's history and true crime. Yeah, I, honestly, like a true crime podcast would have been cool. I can't do that research every week no. though. Yeah, I can't it would, do it. it. Would kill me. I would, I would, I would go crazy. This gets to be a bit much. Yeah. Some days. I, I think I'm going to have to like find someone that was like ecstatically happy and lived like a perfect fucking life for next week. Yeah. There's just a woman who, woman who was killing it and she lived to be 98 years old. Right. Maybe she's still alive. <laughs> she's still alive. She's 98 going on 99. Just right. killing it. Rocking it. Okay. So today I am covering a woman that I was actually going to cover for our Memorial Day episode, but I want to cover someone who is um, military, more military. And actually, I'm glad I didn't because you covered Virginia Hall and this woman is from that same time. Okay. Very similar. Yeah, that would have been that would have been a fun episode. Oh, but before I get started uh, in our last episode, I talked about trying to figure out when Ruth Coker Burks's birthday was. Mm-hmm. I did look her up on Twitter. She has a private account and I was way too scared to like try to follow her because you have you, to be approved. I'm like, I don't want to harass wanna, her. You don't want to get into her DMs. I don't want to harass her. She's living her life. She's doing her thing. She doesn't need me bugging her. Right. But if anyone's like a close personal friend and wants wants uh to be like hey and these, has her permission recognized you well and just has her permission let us know when her birthday is because i want to like give her a shout out right <laughs> okay so i am covering mildred fish harnack nazi resistance fighter <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So, uh, Mildred Harnack was born on September 16th in 1902 in good old Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Woo-hoo. Go cheeseheads. And uh, she was one of four children to German-American parents. She grew up in a large population of German immigrants and uh, grew up learning how to read, write, and speak in both German and English. That sounds accurate. In 1919, her family briefly moved to Washington, D.C., but Mildred returned to Wisconsin in 1921 to attend university. Yeah. Yeah. You get kind of stuck in the Midwest. Yeah. (laughs) It just just pulls you back. I don't know why you'd leave D.C. to come back to Wisconsin, but to each their own. I don't know. Maybe it's too political. Yes. Wisconsin's not political. It's just 
Packers, beers, and cheese. Cheese. She studied English literature, woo-woo, English major, and was a skilled writer. Her stories and poems were published in the Wisconsin Literary Magazine, and she eventually became an assistant editor for the magazine. That's cool. Yeah. Making a living off of writing. Like, it can be well, done. Emily wants to do. <laughs> I kind of am. Yeah. Like, I, mean, I was we write this. I, I mean, we... We write our research notes and then bullshit the rest of it. Oh, well, I was the writing and editing manager where I worked, and now That's I'm true. the project manager. So it's more email writing now, but still getting it done. Fuck yeah. In 1925, Mildred earned her Bachelor of Arts in English and then her Master's in English in 1926. Nice. While working and studying at the university as a lecturer on German literature, she met German jurist Arvid Harnack, and the two were wed. Aw, I didn't get their meat cute story, but I'm going to assume it involved like Oktoberfest. Sauerkraut, beer. <laughs> Sauerkraut, beer, and cheese. <laughs> We're not trying to be offensive. <laughs> we can make fun of Wisconsin. We're yeah. Minnesotans and we but went that to was, school that there. Was, well, we, that was almost more German making fun of than Wisconsin making fun of. See, I was just thinking because Wisconsin has a bitch in Oktoberfest. Do they really? I've never been I've there. heard. All right, we'll, we'll say it was at Oktoberfest then. Okay. Mildred eventually left her job at the Wisconsin Literary Magazine before moving to Baltimore, Maryland, where she taught English at Gosher College. Hmm. In 1929, Mildred and Arvid moved to Germany, where Mildred worked on earning her doctorate at the University of Gießen. Then, in 1930, she moved to Berlin to study at the University of Berlin, where she also worked as a lecturer in English and American literature and as a translator. That's awesome. She's so fucking smart. Right. Like, yeah, she's like amazing. a lit queen. A bilingual lit queen. Bilingual lit queen. My God. There you go. There's the other half of your episode title. <laughs> well, and I love that, like, in America, she's focusing on the German literature, but in Germany, she's, she's like doing American. the American That's because it's cool. like, you guys don't know about this. Let me educate you. She also worked with the American Student Association, uh, served as president of the American Women's Club, and wow. was secretary of the Berlin chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution. That's cool. I didn't know they had a chapter over there. Me neither. That's super sweet. It doesn't make sense to me, but no. go them. I think, you know, they're just like, we got you, America. Yep. Well, isn't it? I think it's terribly wrong. I think it's um, the Daughters of the American Revolution are women who are related to people from the revolution. I don't know. You keep talking. I'll Google. Okay. In, in 1932, which if you remember from episode eight, was a banner fucking year in Germany. <laughs> Woo! Go 1932 in Germany. Oh, it is. It is a lineage-based membership service organization for women who are directly descended from a person involved in the United States efforts towards independence. That's crazy because she was born of German immigrant parents so I, I mean, the American colonists kind of came from all over the place. Yeah. So, all right, cool. I'm not going to think too nope, hard we're on just it. Just going to keep going. It's not important. No one cares. Um. So in 1932, Mildred was fired from her teaching position what? for being a oh. foreigner and a woman. Because remember, yeah, 1932 we had, we had Germany the woman thing before. She she had uh, she was uh, so that was Hildred or not Hildred. Did you just combine Hildegard and Mildred together? And I did. Because <laughs> I was thinking no, it was of, one of the women. I, uh, Hedwig Cohn. Yeah. Hedwig Cohn. I was she like, was I knew it was an H. Fucking and I just... <laughs> awesome time trying to get out of Germany. Oh, my God. 
But yeah, because she was she was Jewish and a woman, and, and then, well, and her their thing was, oh, you're not actually a professor, but this woman was a professor, and they're still like, mm, you're foreign, fuck you. Well, it wasn't so much that was Hedwig was a professor, wasn't a professor that. That was one of their reasoning. That was one That's of the reasons she, she had a hard time getting yeah. out oh, okay. because she wasn't well known. She wasn't like an intellectual person that was seen as worth saving because she wasn't famous. Hmm. Okay. Anyways, continue. Okay. I'm assuming this was under the same act that removed Jews from government service because they're just assholes. Without a job, she and RV joined other academics on a tour of the United States and Soviet Union. Mildred had become interested in communism and its potential as a solution to poverty. We all know how that that's not how it worked out, but hindsight is twenty twenty. Mildred and Arvid had a lot of connections in Germany, and in 1937, they began inviting friends over to chat about politics. So they're having those like intellectual salons like in a Lamps Day. Were they still living in Germany at this point? Yes, so they I did believe this they tour were. And then came back? Yep. Okay. While most people today can't get through a single meal without bringing up politics, at this time it was incredibly dangerous as saying anything negative about the government could get you arrested. Now, there's not enough cells so in the world. So you have to know your friends well enough yeah. that if you say something negative, you know that they're, they're not, not going to rat turn you out. In. Exactly. I mean, now there's not enough cells in the world to incarcerate the people bitching about the government on no, social her, media. Her, her. <laughs> Our, our government already has too many people in cells. Oh, my There's fucking no God. That is just the most depressing thing. And I... Uh, we're not going to get into that. That That's that not what we're doing. Thing. That's not what we're doing at this moment. But we do care and you should too. Then Germany and the Soviet Union officially went to war. Mildred and Arvid would not stand by. That group of friends coming over for political discussions became the Red Orchestra, a Nazi resistance group helping the Soviet Union. They came up with the name because they named their secret radio transmitters after musical instruments. Because they're just intellectual I feel as like fuck. I've heard of that. The Red uh, Orchestra? No, like the well, like their the fact that they named their transmissions after musical instruments. It's smart. Yeah. It's clever. It's so fancy. Right. I would like I don't know what I probably name mine after like TV characters right. because I'm such a piece of shit. <laughs> Sterling Archer. <laughs> I tell you, I just got done watching all of that. Yeah. Oh, my God. Sterling Archer, Jake Peralta, Peter yeah. Griffin. No, no. I draw the line there. Burt Macklin. Burt fucking Macklin. Absolutely. Right. Oh, I love you. Continue. Hey, they did would you all get be any, male names. Did you get any uh, transmissions off of the Amy Poehler? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. From 1940 through 1941, the Red Orchestra supported the Soviets by transmitting messages to Soviet fighters that revealed information about the Nazi Air Force, planned attacks, the number of planes, how much fuel they had, and even where they were storing chemical weapons. How did they find all this shit out? Because they're fucking awesome. Right. Mildred helped send information to the Soviets regarding Operation Barbosa, which was the planned Nazi invasion of Russia, so that the Nazis could repopulate Russia with Germans and use the Russians as slaves. Do you think Hitler was just like petting a white cat? Oh, yes. Yeah. Like you chuckling sinisterly? And then he made the dumb, the dumb mistake of, you know, sending his troops to Russia in winter. God, it's. Twice. I believe he did that twice. Well, maybe not Hitler, but I think during both. No, because they were on the same side in World War One. But it's happened twice. That where people sent Napoleon. Yeah. is famous for where having done like, that. Where they're like, 
who thinks that's a good idea? Well, and just this, it's its like, oh, yeah, we're uh, we're going to repopulate Russia with Germans and turn all the Russians into slaves. I'm like, yeah, that's going to go over well. This is like from a bad children's cartoon. Right. It's just insane. Was he, like, getting advice from Wiley e. Coyote? Right? God. Mildred also worked to recruit others for the resistance, working as a contact between her husband, other members of the Red Orchestra, and Soviet agents. Nice. So she's, like, out there. Oh, yeah. She's, like, front lines, like, let's do this shit. And I couldn't find a ton of information on the Red Orchestra. I'll get into it because there are books written about it, but. We don't have time to read books, people. Yes. In the midst of all this, Mildred also managed to earn her doctorate. And I don't wow. understand how. Because, she, like... She must have had some connection with a, a, a teacher that was willing to teach her. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't get into it. But she, she got her doctorate. That's my assumption, is that she probably went through the college she, like, used to work at. And, you know, Was able to earn her. it. Yeah. Or maybe it was just she couldn't work there, but she could still attend. Maybe. I don't know. But anyway, congrats, Dr. Mildred. Right. Nazi resistance fighter, Dr. Mildred. Unfortunately, because Nazis ruin everything, they discovered who was behind the Red Orchestra. Um, I read in one account that they had captured a Soviet spy who revealed their identities, and in another that the Nazis decoded messages from them. However it happened, Mildred, Arvid, and 116 other members of the Red Orchestra were arrested. Oh. Yeah. Because we can't have a happy Nazi story. They don't exist. Nazis are terrible. In December of 1942, after a four-day trial, Mildred and Arvid were found guilty of espionage. Arvid was sentenced to death and hanged on Christmas Eve oh, of the same year. What? Because... That's even worse. And like, then, come on, Nazis. And then for added effect, they drowned a box of puppies. Right. <laughs> like, and then I found in one source that said that he was hanged from meat hooks. Because I'm just thinking, like, by the hanged rope. by the neck, yeah. But... And I didn't find that anywhere else, but I'm like... What's his name? Uh, Arvid Harnack. So just let that visual sink in for a moment. <laughs> I put it I put in my notes, like, cue to take a big sip of wine, but yeah, since I'm done ugh. drinking, I can't. I can't. This makes me, like, shiver. Yeah. That's gross. Initially, Mildred was sentenced to four or six years. History differs. Ooh. Uh, in a prison camp. However, this was not good enough for top dick waffle Hitler, who refused to endorse her sentence. On his orders, she was re- retried and sentenced to death. Mildred spent her last month in prison reading and translating books of poetry because English majors are relentless. On February 16th, 1943, at 42 years old, Mildred was beheaded. Her last words were, I have loved Germany so much. Did you find something? I mean, according to Wikipedia, yeah. Okay. Because it says Hitler reinstated the death by hanging for them and secretly had the meat hooks installed in Plot, Plot Zene- I don't know, some prison. Yeah. Um, which became publicly known only two and a half years later during the July 20th executions. Fucking gross. God, that's so much worse than hanging by the neck. It's hateful. That it's I don't, it's like, hateful I'm, and sadistic. At that point, I think you just die of blood loss. Like, ugh. yeah. Okay, sorry. 
Okay, so Mildred's last words were, I have loved Germany so much. Because she wasn't doing this because, like, she had such a connection to her German heritage yeah, she from was day doing, one, she, and she just didn't yeah. want to see the country was, that she loved turn into a shit field. Yeah, it was like some of the women that we've covered who fought for America in various wars that they're yeah. like, no, I'm doing this because I love my fucking country. Who was, well, and then there was also, like, was it uh, Sarah Emma Edmonds? Yep. Who was Canadian. And still fought for the Americans. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I covered her. Okay. This made Mildred the only American woman executed on Hitler's orders, which is a depressing esteem to hold. Yeah. After Mildred was executed, her body was turned over to Herman Steve. Steve. According to Wikipedia, it was both their bodies. Oh, see, I didn't look into him. I just focused on Mildred. I know. That's why I was like, I'm just going to add a little fact that I got when reading about meat hooks. Um, So Herman was an anatomy professor at Humboldt University who then dissected her Mm. body to study the effects of stress, like awaiting execution, on the menstrual cycle. Like, can you even tell that from dissection? I don't know. Like, I feel like you'd need, like, a living person for that. Like, I... uh, Hey, uh, people medical who know mavens. about this. Yeah, medical mavens, please, please email let us, us know. because I don't understand that. It just sounds gross. The next part I am quoting straight from Wikipedia because it's so creepy. Quote: After he was through, he gave what was left to a friend of hers. Unquote. This just what was left. It's so gross I feel and like disgusting. That should never be a sentence that comes after like somebody's death yes i mean okay i guess you could technically say it when someone donates organs you could be like oh you can have what's left but you don't don't say say that that. (laughs) you know you're uh thank you for donating your person's organs they are ready to be taken to the funeral home now your brother billy it was so nice of him to donate his organs he saved so many lives you know what's left is in the box over there you don't say that (laughs) oh that just that's so terrible Mildred was buried in Berlin's Zelvendorf Cemetery, making her the only member of the Red Orchestra whose burial site is known. However, her headstone there bears both her name and Arvid's, which is sweet because, like, this is her story, but he was such an important part. They clearly loved each other. They loved each other. They supported the hell out of each other. Like, he was in there. They fought together. Yeah, he was in there, boots on the ground, just like she was, and he paid the price, too. Okay. Legacy. Mildred is celebrated in Wisconsin on her birthday, September 16th. Good job, Wisconsin. Go, Wisconsin. It's like one thing you did, right? (laughs) Well, Minnesota shade over here. You also gave us our degrees, so. Okay. (laughs) And we also met. We're so shitty in Wisconsin, but we owe it a lot of stuff. Yeah, we do. (laughs) Though she's not very well known, Mildred is remembered as a hero. There is a book available on Amazon called Resisting Hitler, Mildred Harnack and the Red Orchestra, which looks pretty fucking amazing. Haven't bought it. Haven't read it. Please let us know how it is. That or if one of us buys it, we'll let you know. Yep. So that's the story of Mildred Fish Harnack. And I'm glad I kept it pre. I I was worried we were both going to do short stories, but it worked out. Yeah, I think mine was pretty long. Sorry. No, you're. It was worth telling. Just because I wanted to go over some of her pieces of artwork, like because otherwise her story would have been like. A page. (laughs) Well, so she was forced to leave Cuba. She was really bummed out. She did some art. And then her husband probably totally murdered her. Yeah. 
You know, I mean, and her art is her story. Yeah, exactly. that was her telling her story. Yeah. And we've talked about this taking control of your narrative. That was her expressing herself. Yeah, it was amazing. And I'm glad she was able to get it done before her son of a bitch husband right. decided to be a piece of fucking and yeah, shit. Yeah, she might not have done as much as some women do, but I, I thought it was a good story about like self, oh, I think, self-expression yeah. and feminism and like just different than what we've done. Well, and she was telling a story that you and I certainly cannot identify no. with. I mean, identity issues, struggling with coming to terms with yourself, maybe, but like being uprooted from your home because someone's being a piece of shit your family is being scattered your father's in a political prison all all you have is your sister and you don't know what's happened to your family yeah and struggling with that that's something i'm sure a lot of people can identify with especially those who were in the peter pan program program so this has been a little bit of a bummer of an episode um kelly what are you thankful for um I'm thankful for the lady at the vet's office that held my dogs when I had to go clean up poop. That was. <laughs> it actually is the it's the same vet technician that um did not Navi's uh, puppy training. Oh, so, like we we know all of them. Like I walk in and they're like, "Oh, the Grumble's here." I'm like, "Yeah, love it." I'm by myself. Please assist me because Navi. <laughs> First time Navi's been in our new car. I was originally not going to take the new car. And then I was like, fuck it. It's in the driveway. I'm taking the new car. Uh, Navi pooped on the floor mat. Oh, at least it was the floor mat. Yeah, thank God. Thank God. But it's funny because we had put like a seat protector on, but they they figured out how to get around it. And we're just like, Dory was by the time, because I forgot my keys. So by the time that I put the dogs in the car, walked back into my house, which was like 10 steps and got back out to the car, Dory was sitting in the front seat. And I was like, God damn it. Oh, my God. Yeah, I was like halfway to the vet, and I'm like, like, oh, son of a bitch. And then, <laughs> yeah, and, and then as we were walking, in, Dory pooped like on their sidewalk, so I like Aww. went in and like you know they weigh him and everything, and then I'm like, would you mind holding my dogs while I go clean up poop? And she's like, no, that's fine. I'm that's like, okay, awesome. Thank you. I'm yeah, sure she, they're used to that. She was just really, really nice, and I, yeah. you know, it was just kind of stressful, and I, I really appreciated it. So it's sometimes the smallest acts of kindness have the most significant impact and she was just doing her job right and i mean i'm sure if they were like super busy she might have been like hey i can't right now like you know and that would have been fine yeah yeah she was just like super nice about it and she even like when i went out she went back to see if anyone could start because they were just there for nail trims Mm -hmm. so she went back to see if anyone could start the nail trims and so she was coming out of the back as i was coming in and she's like oh everyone's busy right now but they'll be ready in like a minute and yeah like a minute later she came and got one of the dogs nice like oh that was nice I'm glad. I'm glad to and hear then, you that. Know, my, the poop in the car didn't have to sit out in the hot sun while I waited for my dog's nails oh, to be trimmed. That Lord. would be so bad. Good God. The car yeah. would just be ruined. Yeah. I would be like, <laughs> oh, we have to return this car. It now. never stops smelling like shit. Right. So, yeah. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for the small acts of kindness. Nice. Um, I touched on this already. I'm really thankful. I'm having kind of a rough day today, and I won't go into detail because it doesn't matter. But I am so thankful I have a network of people who support me. So I was basically able to text Kelly and be like, can I just come over? I need to get out of my house right now. And you were like, absolutely. I know. I was like, I need to finish my notes. So I don't know if we can record, but you're welcome to come over. Yeah, I just I just need to be out of my house. And yeah, there there was one day that I almost did that to you. And I'm like, I know, Emily, as long as she's home, I know she would be like, yeah, come over. Oh, absolutely. Or even if like. For some reason, my house is home. Open. Here's your key. Here's where our key is hidden. Right. Or even like, let's hey, go we'll go on a backyard. walk. Like, l- l- let's go on a walk or something right. because we need to just be away. Yeah, I get that. 
So I appreciate it and thank You're you for welcome. that. I love you. I love you too. And we love you listeners. We love you so much. I mean, we won't allow you into our homes. No. But we'll allow you into our inboxes. Yeah. And our Twitter and our Instagram and our blog and lots of other places. Just not, you know, our homes and our personal lives. Yeah. Because we're we're not there yet. We're not, we're not there, there yet. yet. Maybe wait, wait till like episode 50. Maybe we'll be there by then. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Please hit us up on Facebook, Whining About Herstory, Instagram, W-A-H pod. Twitter, W-H-A underscore pod. A-H. God damn it. Do you I always, always do say H-A? <laughs> W-A. It's funny because I even like listen to you say it and I'm like A-H. A-H. H-A. Damn it. W-A-H <laughs> underscore pod. Our blog is whiningaboutherstory.com. And our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. Please let us know if you have women that you'd like us to cover. Tell us about the women in your lives. We can give them a shout out on our Say Their Name segment. Tell us about yourself if you want to. If you're doing something really awesome, art, writing, fucking anything, let us know. Like, you just graduated from college? Let us know. We'll give you a shout out. That's an incredible thing. Yeah. Like, we'll signal boost the hell out of you because we love you guys. Yeah, come on. Actually, we got a recommendation on Twitter. Or the, someone they was talking about a woman. They a different podcast. And I was like, I think I'm going to steal this idea. So we're going to do that. And I believe her name. Hold on. We'll give you a shout out. Her name is Kathy or Kit or I should have pulled this up beforehand. Wasn't it like K-A-T-Y? Was it Katie? Kara. 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 Thank you for the woman. And I'll probably be doing her next week. Awesome. So. Even though you didn't mean it for us, I'm going to steal it anyways. Go, Kara. <laughs> hey, you put that shit out there. Yeah, all right? right? Signal boost. Right? And this is what happens when similar female podcasters follow each other. It's awesome. Yes. All right. Well, thank you again for listening. This has been Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.